Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Thanks again uh, to uh, just our worship team and, and so many people involved, Giancarlo. Uh, uh, you, you probably get a feel of, uh, of how special it is to have like, such a wonderful team here at the church. I, I'm really blessed, obviously, in the context of leading and being the pastor that we have such a wonderful staff and they're all playing their parts. And so uh, uh, a morning like this happens because everybody's serving. Even people get you tables. Thanks, bro. You're the best. Uh, we've been in a series that we've been kind of encouraging you to think about this in, in your life, you know, how, how you process change. Uh, you know, some people love change, some people hate change, some people get stressed during change. And, and we've called this series, like, Seasons of Change. And it happens in all of our lives. There's times where change seems like it's getting intensified. You know, like, we're like, oh, this is a lot. You know, and we have uh, sayings that we use, you know, when it rains, it pours. I mean, that's a common saying you'll hear. Like, it's like, so much change, so much is going on. And we wanted to start this fall season with a, a chance to kind of look at times in the Bible when that's happening as well. And to be like, God, you know, what can we learn from how you have been faithful and how you helped others and how you were teaching people to welcome certain kinds of change and to pay attention to certain change that is not good. Not all change is good. And so we, we have to learn that. And so if you're here this morning and you're new to church, you came with your friend, maybe you're watching online or listening on a podcast We're really excited that you're with us and we know that sometimes it's really hard to understand the Bible. It's hard to understand like what Christians sing about. I sometimes sing songs, when we're singing the songs, I'm like, I have a friend or somebody in my family who's an atheist and they're not in the church. I'm like, they wouldn't understand that song. Like that, that wouldn't make sense to them. And I often think about what it means to create a space that people who are maybe new to this conversation and people like some of you who've been following Jesus and been Christians for a long time, You feel like that you, you can learn and you can create space to do that. And so today we're going to talk about some of those things that hopefully are going to help you no matter where you're at. Feel that you can grow and take just one step, just a little bit closer to understanding what it is God wants to say to us. I want to begin by showing you this work of art uh, on the slides. And it's a work of art, famous work of art, that was, uh, was basically uh, restored a few years ago. And artists noticed something really, really unique in the restoration. It's called Girl Reading a Letter, an open window, a really creative title girl reading a letter and open one. Uh, uh, you know, I, I take a look at the images. One is uh, the pre-restoration and the other one is the restored version. Uh, take a look for a second and see if you notice anything different. You ever play those games? Like, what is different from that picture? It, it's kind of like that. And art historians were, were shocked when they noticed this in the, in the artwork. Okay, this is a safe place. How many of you do not see a difference? You can, you can leave now. We have a prayer space right here. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Maybe, maybe you notice it right away, right? You notice that in the back, there's this Cupid, which is another picture within the picture that was covered at some point in the artwork. 
And art scholars are not sure if the artist himself painted it first and then painted another painting over it to disguise the meaning of who the girl is in the picture. That maybe there was this love, and Cupid represents love, the great, like, little, you know, chubby little angel thing. Uh, and so uh, the, the art historians are always trying to figure out, was it someone else who covered it to make it look more, you know, clean? And, you know, part of it, as I, I read this, I thought about this, I thought about how sometimes when things get restored, they reveal new things. And we've been looking at this series in the Bible, we've been looking at these books in the Bible that help us to think about as God begins to restore things and change things, He also begins to reveal new things to His people. Things that they forgot, things that they didn't pay attention to. And you think about that the things that we restore are things that don't really have like a value that we could just get rid of. They're classic things. You know, if you could just buy something new, you don't restore it, you just like throw it out, right? But when you think of the idea of restoring something, you realize like it's a timeless thing. You can't just get it another one. The Bible uses this image of restoring when it looks like he is restoring a relationship with the people that he loves. And so I want you to think of your mind, especially if you haven't been here with us for a little while, wait, uh, for, for a little while, is the idea that restoring in the Bible also means that God is healing his people. That he's starting to kind of address things in their hearts that maybe they, they, they thought were, they were doomed to carry for the rest of their lives. That things were never going to change. And God's like, watch me begin to restore this. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years. And I've seen God restore some broken things. I've seen God heal relationships that parents had with their kids that were so difficult and conflicted and painful and that God began to restore those things. Because you can't just get rid of your kids and buy new ones. Right? Like there's some things that we know there are, are you can't just change. You have to ask God to heal and restore those things. And so as we look at this, these two books in the Bible called Ezra and Nehemiah, I want to look again to parts in the Bible where God begins to restore certain things and he tries to show his people that these are things that you have to let me touch. You can't just go buy new ones. You can't just hope like you'll figure out something else. No, no, this is me at work in your lives beginning to heal things. You have anything that you need God to heal in your life? I mean, I think of healing, I quickly think of just physical pain. You know, that's the kind of healing level one. You know, you got my back hurts, my foot hurts, maybe something more serious. There's healing. But then there's other kind of healing. Healing that you know will be painful. Healing that will require you to change. Healing that you know is just there, but you're afraid. You know, when God begins to restore this time in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's these two writers, there's these books in the Bible. We usually say they're Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll see it on the slide, right? Because in the most ancient manuscripts that we have of these two books, they appear as one book. So it's almost like Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. But in our Bible, if you've been reading and you've been here in the series, there are two books, right? You can read them. The book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. And you know that Ezra and Nehemiah are key leaders that God uses to begin to help people pay attention that he is changing things. And change means God is restoring some things. Okay, now if you've been here, for those of you who have not been here, maybe you're just tuning in, you... You, this is one of the questions you do not have to answer. It's, you wouldn't know the answer. But if you have been here, what is the symbolic thing that is being restored in this story? The what? The temple. Now, if you didn't know that, and you've been here for the past few weeks, you should have known that. 
Okay? The temple is symbolic of God saying, as I begin to restore things in the people's lives, as they begin to realize that they were slaves and now I'm setting them free, as they begin to realize that I'm forgiving their sins, I'm going to remind them that the way they worship me because of that is they will need the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah are these leaders who God uses to begin to help them to do that. They begin to help kind of restore things. It's almost like it's symbolic of new life and new meaning. It's almost like when a couple gets married and they buy a house. They're like, it's kind of like, this is a visual symbol of what we hope to see kind of stirred here. So when people come, they're like, God has been at work and God is blessing us. And not only that, the people around, they realize this. Maybe you remember this. I want to read a passage just from Ezra right away. Outsiders who are not part of the people of God, they realize this. And this is what we're told. We ask the leaders, they come to them, we ask the leaders, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? There's people who are watching, people building, and they're like, oh, wait, wait a second. Who said that you guys can start building your temple again and restore this? This is a really important note that if you read, you maybe read it really, really quickly. Because everybody in the ancient world knows that when a people start to gain new confidence, and you trust in their God, they begin to think about how they're going to worship their God. And so outsiders are aware that this is not good news that the people of God are this, like, excited. Let's unexcite them. Let's kind of begin to tell them, whoa, whoa, like this, you guys are too happy, too loud, too many trumpets, too many flags. You know, some of you maybe went to a church that has flags and trumpets and tambourines. I used to go to a church like that. See, it's just excitement. And, you know, the, the Bible tells us that there's outsiders who see this and they're like, so who, where did you get the okay for this? I still remember when, when the 180 started. Somebody from the city said this to me. Not exactly in these words, right? But, but we, were, we were starting, the church had started and we, we were still like a really, really small group and we were facing that way. And, you know, people would visit and they would come and check it out. And one day somebody came up to me after the, the gathering and they said, you know, you know that you're not allowed to be doing this here, right? And I said, really? They're like, yeah, like this is kind of illegal. I was like, I'm going to jail. <laughs> No, I, I didn't know. I was nervous. Like, I had no idea. And, and the truth is, they, they were saying to us that because this space is not zoned to be a religious gathering space, the city would likely come to us and say, you know, if people call or find out, you need to figure out the zoning requirements for the space. And, you know, I, I thought, that is really, really nice that you would tell us that. I said, thanks. You know, I had no idea. I wasn't aware of all that. I wasn't sure. So they, in a nice way, kind of said, you have to maybe go to the city and begin to ask that. And so I think about that. Like when people who see what we do, they probably are thinking a few things. You guys could have slept in today and you came here. They're like, that's weird. You could have been doing so many other things. Is Costco open on Sunday? You could have been there. Or you're like here and they're watching and they're like, so who, what, what are you guys doing here? Why would this be important to you? The people in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah know this and they're saying, Hey, hey, we need to slow down you guys getting excited about worshiping. Now, to encourage you, uh, just to finish that part of the story, we do have a, the right zoning change to be in here now. So, I, I forgot. I felt like an anxiety in the room. I was like, okay, I think I need to finish that. Okay, so we're fine. So, but then there's people who are inside the story, okay? There's outsiders who are confused, which makes sense. And then there's insiders who are not confused, 
but they're still concerned. You know, I went through as I was reading the book again this weekend, and I just wrote down some of the different experiences that, that people were feeling at this time as they were thinking about all this change. So here, we have them on the slide. I just had them for you. So just look at them and think about them for your own life. Take a minute. Just read them. Which one would kind of represent you? That God is restoring the temple. That change is coming. And certain things come to the surface. Some longed for the good old days. I know some of that. The good old days. Some were tired. Some were super excited. They're like, ah, Braveheart style. If you don't know that movie, I'm so old, whatever. <laughs> Some were fine with how things are. They were like, oh, whatever, let's leave it as is. It's too much work. Build a temple? You don't know how hard it's going to be? How much it's going to cost? Some stepped up to find their place. And some were afraid. This is kind of the tension of the beauty of the Bible. The Bible speaks about us. Because we are all these things. At some point, you feel that. You know that maybe change is coming. You know that God's calling you to take another step. You know that God's calling you to find your place and to be involved and to grow. And you're like, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I can't. I have kids. I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. The Bible just says, hey, other people felt that too. And they were learning to trust God. They were learning to surrender. They were learning to see that there was a new chapter that was waiting, that God was restoring and healing their land and teaching them to worship again and to find their identity again in, in being his people. So maybe for you that's a brand new idea. Like you're like, that's so strange. And we just were so happy that you're here learning with us as we learn to do this, as we learn to grow and understand this better. And then we're told at some point as the people are afraid to discourage, Nehemiah realizes that the people are concerned. At one point in the book, we're, we're told that they're building the temple and then they're building a wall to protect the temple, right? Because it was very common that if there was a, you know, a insurgents that showed up or some violence, they would start to destroy the temple as a sign of saying, your God is going to die and you guys are going to pay again, right? So they're trying to do this project together and we get to like watch this building project as it, as, as it happens. And at one point, we're told that the workers on the wall are far apart. And so they're afraid that they're not close enough together and they're trying to figure out a time like if ever somebody comes to attack us, what do we do? I mean, they're thinking about all these logistical things that I would never have thought about. Like I'm not that kind of person. And so Nehemiah writes about this. He tells us that people are really afraid and they're nervous. This is what we're told. It's fascinating. It says, Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. I mean, the truth is that Nehemiah knows something that we know. That the people are afraid. Like, they're excited, but they're, like, afraid. And they're nervous. And they're, they're not sure if God's on their side. They're not sure what it means to, to kind of trust God and to take the next step and to do this. And so this is one of the things I, I want to pause for a second to talk about. Because at some point in your life, you will get to a place in the Bible where you hear language that says, God fights our battles. Have you ever wondered what that means? Like the Bible says God is love. A God who is love and a God who fights kind of doesn't seem like they fit in our minds. 
And over the years, I've struggled this a lot. Maybe it's just my struggle. I've struggled with reading parts of the Bible and seeing like there's violence in the Bible. People are killing other people in the Bible. People, and then you're like, and we love Jesus and he loves people. And we're trying to like to distance ourselves from those stories in the Bible. And what happens over time is we stop reading most of the Hebrew, most of the Old Testament. We're like, we're not, I'm not, I don't even know how to read that. And so we start to disconnect the story of the Bible, and understanding it better. So, you know, I, I want to just go a little bit deeper this morning to help us with that, okay? Just to help us feel a little bit of that tension. And if you don't have that question yet, you should. Because at some point, somebody that you know who does not believe in Christianity, who does not love Jesus, will say, oh, you believe the stories in the Bible when God's killing everybody? And you'll be like, oh, no, not, not that part, but this part, but maybe that part. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. Maybe there's no God. It doesn't happen that fast, but it happens. That's what happens. Over the years, I've been a pastor long enough with students and young people and young adults. And at some point, they're never given a little bit of space to think about this. And then they take a class somewhere and the teacher tells them, hey, did you know the Bible has this strange thing it says about God? And they're like, what? We believe, do I believe that? So I, let's just pause and think about what it means when the Bible in the Old Testament uses some language that implies that God is fighting on our behalf. It's kind of hard to think about what that means. One of the things you have to understand is when you're reading the Bible is that different parts of the Bible are meant to help us understand certain times in history. And God inspires the people to write, but they're writing still within the context that they're in. They're writing from within their space, and they're trying to write what God is telling them as they think about their own world that they live in. So there's a really important principle that everybody in the Old Testament especially believes. You, know, you should know this. And everybody kind of embraces this principle. It's the principle that we know as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know that, right? My kids know it really well. My kids live by this principle. You touched my Lego, I'm going to burn your room down. Like, it, it's, it's the escalation level. And I'm always trying to teach my kids, like, okay, so he took your Pokemon cards. Yes. And what did you do? I don't know. Like, I, I threw all of his stuff down the floor. Like, the level of comparing, like, taking a card and throwing all of his stuff, you know, out of his room in another room and wanting to put it on fire is not the same. Like, there's rules of what's, what's equal. And in the Bible... That principle is, is, is always tried to be, like, it's always trying to be addressed. What does it mean, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And who decides when it's equal? Like, if you kill my cow, and you don't own cows, can I kill two pigs? Is that, like, is that fair? Somebody has to say, no, it's not. You could kill a pig and a pigeon. That's the equal to the cow. You're like, okay, write that, somebody write that down so we know. That principle is believed by, it's a, it's a principle that's embedded in the culture of the Bible, okay? Now, when God is writing and his people are writing, they understand that there's something about that that has to apply to them too. They're the people of God, they love God, but if a nation hurts them, they, they reciprocate that by that principle. Now, we would be like, wasn't there a better way? There is going to be a better way. But they're still living in that tension of that way. And they're asking God to fight on their behalf because a God who wins battles for you, victories equal, your God is the real God. Now again, for us, we're like, isn't there another way? Like, that seems kind of weird. I get it. I get it, right? 
But when you don't learn that you have to understand that about the world of the Bible, if you come on Tuesday nights, you know this a little bit because we're working about the culture of the Bible, you can think like, do, like, what do we do with that? Do we do this again? So that's one principle, that the Bible has a world and a, a principle that everybody kind of understands. Okay? The other thing is people in the Bible are wrestling with another problem that we often assume is taken care of another way, which is what does fair self-defense look like? Right? Like if somebody shows up in a village and burns everything down, God fights our battles. Like can we go back and fight back and defend like our children and women and cattle? Can we do that? Well, the, the people in the Bible are wrestling with that. They're like, we're trying to be obedient and we think God's going to fight for us. And so they retaliate sometimes. And then we read it and we're like, this sounds like a crazy thing right here. We're not sure. Like, do you guys believe this? In a sense, yeah, we do believe that, but we understand what it means in the world that it's given to us from. So when somebody says that, we're like, yes, but we're learning to read our Bible properly and we're growing. We're not just thinking like that's what we're doing today. Let me, get, let me just take it a step further because some of you look like you're already tired. So it's perfect, perfect time. Let me read you a prayer that is in our Bible. Like this, somebody wrote this down and I would have been like, you sure you want to leave that in there? It's kind of intense. No, like leave it in there. It's going to be good. When they're going to remember this. This is a prayer in the Psalms of what it means when people have been hurt and wounded and angry and want revenge and believe that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, our God is going to be with us too, you know? Wait till we're finished building the temple and wait till we get our act together, even, even though they usually don't, okay? But this is what they say. I'll read it for you and tell me when you get the heebie-jeebies right here. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. This is the pagan people are called Babylon. This is the prayer. Imagine praying this. Doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you. Revenge language. Blessed shall be he, uh, uh, shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. The rock. Any of you pray like this? This isn't the Bible. I could just picture people like in a class. And the teacher's like, oh, if you're Christians in the room and you read the Bible, what do you guys think about this? People are like, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know what's real. No, you do know because we're learning. This is what it means for the Bible to give us the most raw, painful feelings of people who pray the praise we want to pray. This is what it looks like when injustice happens in the Bible. This is what it looks like when people are taken from their families and killed. The only prayer they have is like, God, we don't even know how to ask for your help. But one day, they will feel our pain, right? Right? They're feeling that tension. So can I just remind you of a very basic principle? That the Bible gives us raw prayers, but they're not things that we're going to practice today. We read them as prayers, not as modern-day practices that we would do ourselves. And when we don't learn that, you're like, oh, do you guys do this? Of course we don't, know, we don't do this. Oh, we thought you believed the Bible. Yeah, we believe the Bible properly. Violence in the Old Testament. I gave you like six minutes. It's a 60-hour course, okay? So I'm just saying, it's, it's just understand that you have to know a bit of that because whenever you get to these sections, you'll feel like an anxiety, and you should. You should be like, I don't know what this means. Like, what do we do? Do we do this? Do we not do this? Can I just give you one last thing to just tie a bow on this? Of something that Jesus himself would have begun to gently remind the people in the New Testament about. When he comes 
And he knows that the people are angry. He knows that the people are feeling like we're still slaves. God has not set us free. Jesus knows this. This is what Jesus will say. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But I tell you also, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Can you imagine how mind-blowing this would have been to hear this? You're like, what? Like, we know what the prophet said. We know how to live by the patterns of the old time. We know how to do the first part. But Jesus, we don't know how to do this. Jesus will become the teacher for us who helps us learn how to read the Old Testament in a totally new way. He becomes the one that says, well, I know that that's how you used to live. But now that I'm here, he gives them this really basic principle. And I'll give it to you if you're writing something, you want to write this down, it'll help you. That victory does not come by warfare. But victory comes by worship. And that changes everything. Jesus will teach them that you know that every nation that has come before us, even you yourselves, have, gone, have won some victories by warfare. But you know what? You're still fighting. You still haven't learned to love someone if you just kill them and say, we won. I have come to teach you something much deeper. And so Jesus, in a sense, fulfills all of the stories of Israel, all of the teachings by saying, you now are going to be given the strength to love your enemy and to pray for them. That's like, what are you talking about? This is important, okay? And I, I needed to kind of stop there because at some point you're going to see Nehemiah and Ezra, that stuff is always there creeping up. Like, we're going to win. The temple's built. We need an army. We need to fight. And, and I, I remember growing up and thinking, how come I don't understand this well? Like, and I wanted to be like, just to give you a little bit of some thoughts and thinking. If you're interested, obviously we have classes and there's some books you can read, but it's important to just at least get to that point. Because the next part of the story we're told that as Nehemiah continues to build the wall, is I want to kind of end on this part, is that he starts to get distracted. That he's like dealt with the fact that God is fighting on their behalf, God is with them, and then the people who see him doing this are like, okay, these people, these Jewish people, like they're not stopping. We try to scare them. We're yelling at them. We're telling them to like, you know, that don't worry about it. At one point, they come up with this brilliant idea. They're like, you know what? How about we help you build the temple? Like, the people who don't even believe in the God of Israel are so clever. They're like, if we can't help you, if, if we can't stop you, let's just cause this to get really messy. And there's a whole section of Nehemiah where, like, Nehemiah is trying to figure out, like, do they really want to help us? Are they really? What? This doesn't seem right. Like, he's trying to make sense of what happens next. What we feel sometimes, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to discern what God is doing and what it means to trust certain people and not to trust certain people. And at one point, Nehemiah says, I realized that they were trying to hurt us. And I realized that they were trying to scheme and trick us. And the best scheme that they have, I'll read it for you. It's right here. It's fascinating. They were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. They kept calling him. Nehemiah, come. We're going to talk. We're going to have a coffee. Just come down. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not coming down. We can't do this. Why should the work stop while, I'm, while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Well done, Nehemiah. Write that down. Like, they're just like, hey, let somebody, somebody tell them we're going to take them out for lunch. Somebody just get them to stop this, because they know that Nehemiah and Ezra are doing something that are going to help the people understand that God is with them. 
and that God is healing and restoring their lives. And so these outsiders know that they need to kind of slow this down, stop the thing. They, it would have been so easy to just kind of start a war, but they don't do that. They're like, let's create distractions. Let me just tell you that the most dangerous times in our lives will be when the devil creates distractions in your life. You know, I know you grow up and you think, oh, there's evil going to come and there's some pitchfork, something. Dead. No, no, that never happens. Most people don't just get up and decide, oh, everything's falling apart. They slowly, incrementally move to the place where they're not sure why they believe following God is important anymore. Why it means to dedicate and commit your life to a faithful way to live, an honest way to live, a life surrendered around Jesus by a distraction. A little distraction. We live in a world that is so distracting that even in the Bible times, they would, they would be blown away at the level of distractions we feel, right? Like we live in a world when, when you're driving on the road, there's a billboard that changes as you drive to get in five distractions before you finish that stretch of road. Ads, news, feed, dinging, your phone, your kid, you're there. You're there. And imagine in all of this, all you need is a few of those. And next thing you know, it's like, is it already Sunday? Is it Tuesday? Like, did we go to, are we committed to any of this? Is anybody, like, what do we believe? Like, what's happening? Just a distraction. You know what? Some of those distractions can even be good things. But good things, when they become ultimate things, idols are soon developed. When good things become ultimate things, idols soon develop. This is the rule, friends. It's never going to change. I've seen people with good things Parents who love their kids, good things. And all of a sudden, there's a whole new rhythm of their lives and they're not sure what to do anymore. This disorientation, small distraction. Next distraction, next distraction. A university did research on how distracted we are. And they, gave, uh, they were trying to figure out how distracting our cell phones are. I know they're not distracting for any of you. But the you're sweating because you can't pick up your phone. Some of you have already picked up your phone, but it's fine. But it's the sense of like, Okay, is it going to be done? Is it, is it vibrating? Did I get a message? I'm not sure. I feel, I'm not sure. I feel it now. Should I check it? It's dumb looking. That's what they said. <laughs> Research published by the University of Chicago found that even if cell phones are turned off, turned face down, or put away, their mere presence reduces people's cognitive capacity. Do you imagine? That means from now on, when you come to church, leave your phone at home. Look at some of you. Already you're like, I hope he's kidding. Oh, I hope he's kidding. Just leave it in your car. This is not, it's not me. I didn't do research. I'm just saying, we know that distractions are everywhere. Nehemiah is like doing the good work of God. He's trying to commit. He's trying to focus. Hey, Nehemiah, what are you doing? I'll come down here. Hey, Nehemiah, you want to? What kind of distractions have been in your life so long? That if you don't call them distractions and pinpoint them and say, this will keep me from growing in my faith, they will always be there. Always. They're never going away. We need to learn to begin to do what Nehemiah and Ezra teach the people to do. To make worship and understanding our place and what God's doing central. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy other things or do other things or love other things. We do. But they don't take the place of the central things. And when things come that sense like they're distractions, we say, whoa, that is a distraction. It'd be wonderful to do that, but we can't do that right now. We'd love to do that another time, but it's not a priority right now. It's so basic. And it was there in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, with a little bit more violence in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. As Ezra and Nehemiah continue to help the people, 
they end with this most beautiful prayer. And I want to end with this moment of prayer that Nehemiah, it's just a line. And in a sense, I want it to be our prayer again. This week, as we think about our week, as we think about distractions, as we think about the ways that we'll feel like just, just a tidal wave of life, that'll happen. Happens like consistently. This is what Nehemiah will tell the people at one point. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. This is it. But I prayed. This is our prayer. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. The most simple, beautiful prayer you could pray. If you've never prayed before in your life, start with this. If you don't know how to pray, every day this week, when you get up, before your feet touch the floor of your bed or your couch or wherever you like to sleep, whatever, just get up and say, Lord, today, strengthen my hands. Not just strengthen my hands so that I can do good at work, which you should. Not only just strengthen my hands so I don't get tired. Not just strengthen my hands so I don't kill my kids. Not just strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands to, rem- to remember that there will be distractions that will keep me from keeping you at the center. Strengthen my hands to focus on the right things. Just strengthen my hands. It's the most beautiful thing that we can pray. And we can model it for the next generation. And we can say in that prayer, God, we on our own are not able to do this if you do not strengthen our hands. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, again, we're going to be wrapping them up soon, are like our lives and the pressures of ups and downs. And obviously we don't think of the temple in the same way. It's very, very different. But there's an invitation for us to say, God, as you restore things, help us to know what we need to do. Help us to know how we need to change. Help us to be ready for the things that we have to say, God, you're going to have to strengthen our hands now. Because the next thing, I don't know how to do this. I'm not sure what this looks like. I'm not sure what this is going to mean for my family, for my kids. I don't know. Would you strengthen our hands? I often do something that my wife loves to do, which is to watch those cheesy house shows. You ever watch them like Love It or List It, those brothers who always do renos. What are the brothers called? The mil- I call them the Million Dollar Brothers, but that's not what they're called, but they're worth millions of dollars, right? I watch these shows with her, and I'm like, you know, I'm a good husband. <laughs> Peter, that's for you. That's my pride level, Peter. That's for you. Okay. <laughs> I told her that the other day. I'm like, hon, let's watch the Habs. Let's, let's watch a game, right? already. Okay, some of you don't worry about it. <laughs> and I watch these shows, and like in one hour, they do like a seven-month renovation. I'm like, look at that. Look at this. Look at these lies. Lies in this show. Like they had the contractors, and then they always do in the middle of the show like a big, to make you stay in the show, they find something dead in the house. Oh, no, a family of raccoons. All here, commercial. And I'm like, hon, if we had a family of raccoons in our house, it would take us like seven years to figure out, call the right people, find somebody at the church who cares about me. Uh, so, like forever. In, in, in one commercial, they come back, we dealt with that, we got an inspector, they took care of it. Here's a new kitchen. How, did the, how does that happen? And you, when you keep watching them, you start to like believe, like if I do a reno, it's going to be like that. It's exactly going to be like that, right? How many of you, you think... Maybe not a week, but like two weeks. And anybody who's a pro says, you want to renovate this? You have like four months? Four months. The guys on TV did it in like four hours. 
right? I think about that because we're dealing with reading a book that would have taken just years of restoration. Now, the temple and the wall are weak sometimes, but we read these books and we get discouraged. We're like, how come we're not becoming spiritual like these people? How come our lives are not better? How come things didn't get fixed? Because that's not how it works. It takes time and serious and attention to detail and, and, and honesty when we pray, Lord, you're going to strengthen our hands now, right? And paying attention to distractions and this and all these things. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're to go to. Like, it happened to us too. We know. We know what it's like. God was with us. God will be with us. So I'm going to have you stand. And I'm going to have us put out our hands today. And I want you to like squeeze your hands and I want you to feel your hands. And before I pray, I want us to close our eyes and I want us each to pray this prayer. You're going to pray for yourself. And as you close your eyes and you pray for God to strengthen your hands, you quietly will ask God what you need that strength for. You do it. It's between you and God. So take a minute and ask God to strengthen your hands. Let's pray. Don't be distracted. God is listening. Father, strengthen our hands. God, we are so easily distracted. Even from good things. And many of us know that we've taken good things and made them the most important thing. And to fix that, we're going to need your strength in our hands, in our hearts, in our minds, as we make decisions. Keeping you at the center is how you restore and heal our lives. I pray for those who are asking for strength today. Your strength for things that they're carrying that require your special wisdom. Decisions that are going to be painful, scary, and they are tired. Father, strengthen their hands. This week, as we do our best to keep you at the center and to grow, to learn, and to begin to trust you more 
keep us attentive to the distractions, the things that we have to set aside, the times we need to turn the TV off or the radio off or something else off or computers off, just help us strengthen our hands to keep you at the center. I pray for those who are still struggling to understand what it means to trust the way of Jesus in a world of violence and in a world of pain. Holy Spirit, you love to help us as we pray for our enemies, as we pray for those who persecute us. So help us to be those who model what Jesus our Lord taught us to do. And be with us this week as we do that. Strengthen our hands. We pray this in his name. Amen. Hey, Jesus will be with us this week. He'll teach us how to be his people. Hey, we're really grateful to worship together. If you're online, hey, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you have your little munchkins, you know you got to get them in a little while. But God bless. You don't have to rush off. We'd love for you to meet someone new. Come say hi. Just masks on. And we'll see you soon. God bless everyone.